Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, February 8th, 2024, the 1114th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So on Monday, we talked about the unipartisan compromise bill. 
back in late October of last year, around the 20th, a couple weeks after Israel's 9-11, when paragliding go-karts flew over the most secure border in world history, causing untold damage to our eternal ally Israel, and we were forced to respond. Joe Biden asked for a hundred plus billion dollars for Ukraine, our friends, of course, we have to defend their very sovereign borders. The brave Ukrainians are trying to push back against Putin's brutal invasion, so we need to help them from now until the end of time. Same thing with Israel. Till the end of time. Taiwan too. Taiwan hasn't even started yet, but it's going to start. And so we're going to need money for it. And this is just the money for the early stages. We're going to obviously eventually need all the money to give Taiwan as much as they need until the end of time. It's like the global regime has these three remaining strongholds out of their global proxy states, and they just don't want to lose them, even though it seems like they are losing them. Of course, they're not just going to give up. They're going to go down swinging. And if they're going to go down swinging, that means they're going to have to pay off a whole lot of people to do that swinging for them, which means they need to launder a whole lot of money, which means they need to, quote unquote, print that money, which is just conjure it out of nothing. And in order to do that, they're going to have to extend our indentured servitude for a few more decades or a few more generations or whatever. They're going to crash the economy either way so that we are forced to go to the CBDC. That's their plan. They're not exactly looking out for us, but they can't tell us these things. They have to say, we're protecting you over here by protecting them over there and not protecting you here. But you understand how it works. I mean, yes, you are technically paying to protect them over there and to protect us. And I'm being the global regime right now. We are paying to protect both of them while the regime is claiming that it is protecting us by having us pay for all that stuff. Because if we don't pay for protecting Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan, then they're not going to protect us even though they don't. I mean, there must be some logical explanation for this somewhere at least. Otherwise, it would just be crazy that they're asking us for $110 billion to fund fake foreign proxy wars in order to protect their stronghold proxy states around the world. And because they didn't want anybody to be talking about that, they figured what they should do is tie that funding to border spending. And what they wanted with the border spending was an increase in the surveillance state down at the border, an increase in the technology. They could get all their tech industry friends paid off that way. Oh, the data they'd collect. They would be able to track everybody. And once they told us how safe it was down at the border, well, then they could just put it in our cities and tell us how safe we are in our cities while we're surveilled all the time. And of course, they need more people to process those quote unquote asylum seekers, which are really just illegal aliens who come here as part of the regime run NGO cartel affiliated global slave trade, that old network that brings them all over here in the first place. They told us if you give us this stuff. We will give you the gift of not allowing this invasion that we have been running for these last few years. Trust us, we're going to shut it down, or at least we'll make it more efficient, which is the same as it being shut down. 
It won't feel like it's your problem anymore. It still will be your problem, but it won't feel like it. And that's what's important. Now, why won't it feel like it? Because the television's going to stop telling you it's a problem. They're only saying it now so that you'll agree to go along with this scheme. And it turned out that people didn't go along with the scheme. They said, hey, this actually doesn't sound like we are getting anything. And you're asking us to give you $110 billion for fake foreign proxy wars. You're not fixing the immigration problem. This isn't going to do it. So we're not going to go ahead with that. Now, the unipartisan compromise was no good for the people in the first place. But at least they had to pretend they had to do all the immigration stuff on television for three months to get us all worked up to know that it's a real problem. It was fine for the three years prior, but now it's a real problem. Now you need to pass this foreign proxy war funding. But now they're not even pretending. Now they're not pretending. They're just saying, hey, we're going to need that $110 billion. We offered you something to at least make you feel like you were getting something in return for our extension of your indentured servitude and that of your next few generations. But that wasn't good enough. So now we're no longer pretending. We're just going to take this money. We're going to commit you to further indentured servitude because the thing is, you can't stop us. We were trying to be nice. We were trying to sell it to you. We were trying to give you a way to wrap your head around what had to be done so that you could be supportive and positive about what we had to do to you. But that wasn't good enough. So now we're just going to do it. This is from CNBC today. Senate advances $95 billion Ukraine-Israel funding bill faces uphill battle as budget talks loom. And of course, this is just the Senate passing an outline of what they want to do. This is not the House passing it. The House is not even going to bring this up, but this is a ploy for leverage. Maybe they think that they can get the House Republicans to bring this to the floor and get a unipartisan group of illegitimately serving congressional Republicans to vote yes to it and send it on to the fake president so that it can be signed and people would pretend that, yes, American citizens are totally on board with extending their indentured servitude for generations on down the line in order to support Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan and whatever else they need. Senators on Thursday advanced a foreign aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, garnering momentum for a funding package that has been a persistent thorn in the side of federal budget talks over the past few months. Yeah, because there's no support for it anywhere in the country except in Washington, D.C. Even most globalists don't want to see this funding continue. By a final tally of 67 to 32, senators voted to begin debate on a $95 billion aid package to fund Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and humanitarian aid in war-torn regions. The bill still faces an uphill battle as senators now begin discussion on amendments with just a few days until they are supposed to break for two weeks. If senators postpone talks for the two-week recess, the aid package will likely get sidelined as budget negotiations take the front seat, given looming government shutdown deadlines on March 1st and March 8th. The $95 billion bill was a stripped-down version of the Senate's $118 billion bipartisan funding package, which was released on Sunday. 
The initial more expensive bill failed Wednesday in a 49 to 50 vote after days of Republican opposition to the border security provisions. Anticipating that the first vote would fail, Schumer devised a plan to force a vote on the new $95 billion version of the bill, this time subtracting the disputed border security elements. So old Chuck Schumer is trying to play the leverage game. He has given the House the option of providing this foreign aid with the border bill that they want, not that the people want, not that's going to clean up the border, just the border bill they want to increase the surveillance state and get more people to process asylum seekers, not actually closing the border until they let in 5,000 people a day. So they have the funding for the foreign proxy wars with their border package and without. Just however you like it, guys. You gotta choose one of these. And once you choose, that'll be your choice. And you'll be on board with this thing that you don't want under any circumstances. Charlie Kirk posted last night, I just received word that Schumer has a CODEL congressional delegation to Kiev planned for two weeks from now to celebrate his and McConnell's Ukraine funding win. These trips take weeks of advanced planning to pull off. If this is all true, then it's almost certain Schumer knew that even if the border deal failed, McConnell would always help give Biden his war money without getting anything in return. So the members of the uniparty regime are going to push this funding forward no matter what. And you might be inclined to think, well, that's pretty ballsy. These regime figures, these uniparty figures, they must have a lot of power to still be acting this way. And maybe, maybe that's the case. I don't think it is, but maybe it is. To me, it seems like a bit of desperation, to be honest. And so let's focus on the paragraph about these deadlines. If senators postpone talks for the two-week recess, which they are pretty likely to do, that means after tomorrow, they'll be gone for two weeks. They'll be gone for the week ending February 16th and the week ending February 23rd. And even though this is a leap year, that means the next Friday back would be that March 1st deadline. So they would come back and only have those four days leading up to that Friday in order to get their new spending bill done. And so what do we imagine is happening here? They're not ready to take this bill to the House yet. There are still other processes in the Senate that must be concluded before they do that, except they're not going to be around to do any of that stuff until that week that leads up to the deadline. And they already have spending priorities there. So what do you think they're going to do with this? Try to get it included in that spending, try to get all that spending passed so that that can take care of all the funding needs for the foreign proxy wars. It seems to me like that's the strategy. And I'll come back to that in a second. But yesterday, the White House was trying to exercise some sort of narrative leverage. And it's so weird when they do this, because you have to wonder if they just don't know any of what's being discussed outside their bubble. But they think they have apparently all sorts of support on things for which they have absolutely no support. It's very strange. This was the headline yesterday from Fox News. White House says ICE Immigrations and Customs Enforcement will reduce deportations 
and detention capacity if Republicans don't pass border bill. So the Biden administration, the illegitimate, the fake president, they have decided to change their approach before they were saying, yes, we recognize that this border situation is a problem. It's been a problem for a long time. We are trying to fix it right now. I, the very real president, need additional powers that would come from this legislation in order to fix it. And I'm asking Congress to do their job and bring this bill to me so that I can sign it so that we can fix this border problem. Now, we talked about how they were going to try to reverse this on Trump and how that would never work. And of course, it would never work. They branded Trump as anti-immigrant. They called him racist. They talked relentlessly about his travel bans to different countries. They tried to pin kids in cages on him. He's the build the wall guy, and they were freaking out about that. They made it part of Trump's identity and personal brand from the perspective of their audience that Trump is anti-immigrant. This is the same thing they did with the vaccines. They try to pin the vaccines on Trump now. Trump was seen and portrayed as the anti-vax guy. A lot of people got that vaccine specifically to own MAGA. Like, I'm going to show all these Trump supporting science deniers. You can't then turn that around and say Trump is the reason everyone got vaxxed. It makes no sense. Just like they can't blame Trump for the border problems. No one's ever going to believe it under any circumstances. And they're trying to sell it, saying that Trump killed this bill and this bill would have worked otherwise. But no one really believes that part either. And so the Biden regime has basically given up on all that. And now they're saying, you know what? We need that money so bad that we're actually going to make this problem worse if you don't give it to us. Not only are we not going to be able to fix this problem you're all worked up about unless you give us extra money and power. We're going to make that problem that someone else is causing even worse if you don't give us that money and power. Now, a lot of people black pill and they think the regime has all this control and they're all the smartest people in the world. Look, they like own the science. They're the smartest people anywhere. That's not smart. They are working against their own branding. And when they decide that doesn't work, they try to go back in the other direction. And that doesn't work either. This is one of the problems with lying all the time. It is definitely not a good long-term strategy, but let's, but let's get into some of the details of this reverse spin that failed as bad as the original spin. The White House on Thursday announced that U.S. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement will soon be quote-unquote forced to reduce operations at the southern border due to lack of funds. Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters that because Republicans have not passed the bipartisan border security agreement with funding for Israel and Ukraine, the administration is left with no choice but to pull back from the border. Because congressional Republicans are choosing partisan politics over our national security and refusing to pass the bipartisan national security agreement that includes significant border reforms and funding over the coming weeks, ICE will be forced to reduce operations because of budget shortfalls, Jean-Pierre said during a gaggle on Air Force One. 
We have asked Congress for additional funding and resources, and every time Congress has provided less than we asked for, or most recently, completely ignored our supplemental request. Now, does that sound like a regime that is in full control? That sounds like a regime that is panicking. They are not giving us the money we need to run our illegitimate government. That is essentially what Karine Jean-Pierre is saying there. And she's trying to communicate to the American people that they should want Congress to hand over that money because without that money, they can't do their very important job of keeping us very, very safe. But no one believes them. And yes, I know that your aunt who sends you emails is still totally on board with the fake president and believes he really got 81 million real lawful American votes. And she still wears her mask to the grocery store. I understand that some people are never going to change. They're never going to get it. But normal Americans have moved on from all of that. Even if you are almost 100% completely committed to the central narrative, there is enough in there to understand that continuing to fund all of this stuff that this government is doing is a very bad idea. You have to understand that most party of false decorum liberals vote and support certain political ideologies because they want to show other people that they are the good people and even the very best people without doing anything at all. And they believe that declaring their support for certain political causes is what it means to be a good person. This is a habit that has been brainwashed into them, and it is exactly the same as the materialism that has also been brainwashed into them. It's not just that they want certain things. They feel like they want certain things. They can't explain why, whether it is a pair of shoes or a car or an abortion policy. They believe that they want certain things because they like how those things were marketed to them. They plan on including all of these different aspects into their identity, into their personal brand, and then they project that forward to other people. These are not deep foundational beliefs for them. They're just aspects of these people's personal identity and personal brand, and they should be treated that way. As soon as the fad goes away, the trend around a certain political ideology changes these people will change their beliefs. They are just parts of their personal brand and absolutely nothing more. And so even if you only look at what is contained within the central narrative about Ukraine, about Israel, about immigration, even normies at that level can understand there's something wrong with all of these things. They understand it is no longer a good idea for them to go out proudly declaring their Joe Biden support. And I'm not making this stuff up. You can see that people don't have their Ukraine flags out anymore. Why not? Did Putin's brutal invasion end? Have the very brave Ukrainians retaken their nation? None of that has happened. They just realized that the trend is no longer there. It's not a fad anymore to be obsessed with Volodymyr Zelensky, just like it's not a fad anymore to be obsessed with Anthony Fauci. Think about a liberal you know. There are liberals I know. 
Think about a liberal who would have bought one of those Anthony Fauci throw pillows or an Anthony Fauci coffee mug, something with Anthony Fauci's masked face on it. If you told that person at this point right now that Anthony Fauci was being brought up on charges for lying about the origin of the coronavirus, something like that, for instance, something that they would see as largely insignificant, not like something about whether or not the vaccine was very safe and very effective. That's going to trigger them too much, but something they wouldn't care about that much. If you said to them, Fauci's being charged with lying about the origins of the coronavirus, how does that make you feel? They would probably be like, who cares about that now? People with Fauci throat pillows who spent two years arguing that it definitely came from a bat because it could never be the fault of scientists or anyone else. It could never be intentional and it could definitely never be fake. They would be happy to throw Fauci to the wolves just so that they don't ever have to sound wrong. Yeah, yeah. You want Fauci? That's fine. I don't care about Fauci now. That was like so 2020, 2021. That was years ago. You're still talking about Anthony Fauci. That's how they think of things. People who had their Ukraine flag emojis, their Ukraine flags hanging off the front of their houses in America, ignoring bioweapons labs, arguing that those aren't Nazis, saying that Hunter was just never over there. The Maidan revolution never occurred. Victoria Newland, Joe Biden, no big deal. Lindsey Graham, John McCain, no big deal. Nothing bad ever happened in Ukraine except Donald Trump trying to investigate his political opponent, all that stuff, it's all gone. They don't care. It's just a trend. It's just a fad. It's past. And they genuinely believe that you are being petty by pointing out their hypocrisy. Like, why do you even care about that? And they don't know because they've never thought about it. Even those people, even those people, they understand that something is wrong With the Ukraine war narrative, with the Israel narrative, they don't know anything about this Taiwan money. What? We're going to protect the sovereign borders of another free country that's having its sovereign borders invaded by an evil dictator? And you need all our money to save you? Again? And you said that the border wasn't a problem, and then you said it was a dire problem that you need special powers to fix. And then you said it was Trump's problem. And now you're saying that because of Trump, you're going to make the problem that you have no control over even worse unless we do what you say. They are asking a whole lot from their army of child brains. These people are not prepared to follow them along that twisty turny path. So let's try to take this all in summation from that October 20th date until now. That is just short, 12 days short of four months. That's how long the fake administration has been asking for this money and how long these quote unquote negotiations have been going on. They wanted money for Ukraine, for Israel, for Taiwan, and for all these other things. They wanted to tie it to the border. They wanted the surveillance. They wanted more people to process, quote unquote, asylum seekers into the country, thereby making their global slave trade more efficiently run. And for nearly four months, we've been told there were negotiations happening. Now, normally in negotiations, two opposing parties try to come to terms about how to move forward. 
And while there may be aspects of negotiations I'm not thinking about right now, two of the most important ones are the terms over which they're negotiating and the leverage each party has to operate against the other in order to get them to come down on their requests, in order to get more of what you want. And over the course of these four months, there have been no negotiations, as far as I can tell, about the terms that are being negotiated. And the leverage that's being used is not being used to influence the terms of the negotiation. It's not a give and take. One party doesn't realize they're in a stronger position and then they extract demands from the other party. That's not the sort of thing that's happening now. The only thing that's happening is that the leverage is being used against the public to coerce the public supporting the passage of these bills, none of which are good for the people. They wanted to get it all done and must pass spending legislation before the end of the year. They wanted it included with the National Defense Authorization Act or the Farm Bill. They wanted an omnibus, but they got a delay until January. And then they pushed those deadlines to early March, kind of thwarted their whole narrative effort that we saw rolled out over the past few weeks. The Supreme Court decision about the barbed wire, the argument about the barbed wire, the hints that we might get involved in a civil war over barbed wire at the Texas border that was doing virtually nothing to stop the flow of illegal immigrants in the first place. A big deal has been made about a problem that has existed for a long time, largely ignored that entire time. Now it is the most important thing that ever happened so that we could get that whole bill passed, but it didn't work. We had stories about National Guard's mobilizing. We had stories about trucker convoys. That thing just disappeared. We were supposed to have a spending deadline last Friday that would have converged really well with this entire process, but whoops, the deadline was changed till March and now none of it makes sense. So they're going on a two-week vacation after passing this thing that tells the country, hey, we really are going to get this funding for Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan done. But nope, they're leaving for two weeks and then they will try to tuck it back in to one of these major spending bills, knowing that those bills must be passed in order to avert a government shutdown. So now they've worked it back into a position where it is either Republicans, quote unquote, shut down the government or everybody gets on board to keep that government going and gives money to those fake foreign proxy wars in Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan and, you know, whatever else. Take a little something for yourself. I mean, think of all these theatrics over these many months, all of it done just to support this narrative and this timing right now. They are basically involved in a shakedown of anyone who might be able to give them money wherever they can find them. This is like being a low-level mobster and you owe money you don't have to the upper-level mobster. And so you are then going around to all of the people from whom you might be able to threaten and extract money trying to get all of their money. You're like a bully in a first-grade classroom just holding kids upside down, shaking them so that all the change falls out of their pockets. And I get it. I get it. That reference doesn't really work anymore because nobody has coins. 
but you understand what I'm getting at here. They're going out and looking for people to shake down and they are telling the mob boss, oh, don't worry, boss, don't worry, don't worry. We're going to get the money. Oh, I'm going to get you your money, boss. And they've just been doing that for months. I mean, what is the point in this? They're just letting the country know that this is definitely a priority no matter what. We're the people who keep saying we don't want that to be a priority. No matter what, we don't want you to prioritize that funding for those fake foreign proxy wars. Maybe there's some group of people that still likes Ukraine. Maybe there's some group of people that just wants Israel to keep kicking ass for some reason, just glass the whole desert. And maybe there are some people out there somewhere in America who are not Taiwanese who think it's a good idea to send American military, American troops over to Taiwan to fight China. But I can't imagine there's many of them. And regardless, even if there's some person that supports this war or that war or the other war, they don't want all of them. They don't want it to be America's thing that we just protect all these other quote unquote independent nations that aren't from their next door neighbors. People are catching on. Hey, maybe there's something wrong with Ukraine. It's weird how much influence we've had over there. It's weird how all of these people are so obsessed with protecting this obvious criminal enterprise, one of the most corrupt states in the world. Why are they still doing this? You really got to wonder what they're panicking about. It's like if maybe they lose in Ukraine, the whole thing is kind of over at that point. Can they really afford to lose any of these places? Does it really seem like they're in position to win any of them? Narratively speaking, all of this has been a disaster for them. Donald Trump gave an impromptu press conference today to reporters outside of Mar-a-Lago addressing some court decisions, which we'll get to in a second. But he also addressed this geopolitical situation. And hopefully I will have some time to talk about that stuff before we wrap up today. But here's Trump talking about World War Three, while all of the uniparty regime communists in Washington, D.C., are doing everything they can to continue funding all of this violence and chaos. Think about it. Had the results of the election been different, that'd be nice. Uh, you wouldn't have the Ukrainian situation with Russia. You wouldn't have had, you would not have had an attack on Israel, which was so horrible. You uh, would not have had inflation. You wouldn't have China talking about Taiwan. You wouldn't have any of the problems that we have today. And you certainly had a, a broke Iran, and now you have a very rich Iran. Iran was broke when I left. They had no money to give to Hamas. They had no money to give to Hezbollah. And now they, were, now they have 200 billion. Plus, as you probably know, people don't like to admit it, they certainly control Iraq. And Iraq has another 300 billion. So they have a very, a very rich a group of, comp of countries. And uh, as you know, Iraq should have never happened. That was a balance against Iran. And we blew out the balance. And now Iran has essentially Iraq. And Iraq doesn't like saying that, but that's the way it is. And uh, it's a shame. The world is in tremendous danger. We're in danger of possibly a World War III. And we have a man who's absolutely 
the worst president in the history of our country. He can't put two sentences together. He's not going to be able to negotiate with Putin or Xi or Kim Jong-un, North Korea. Not going to be able to negotiate with anybody. All he knows how to do is drop bombs all over the place, meaningless bombs, except they kill a lot of people. It costs a lot of money. Every time you see a bomb, it's another million dollars, and it actually sets us back. We have peace through strength. This should not be happening. The Middle East is blowing up. It's blowing up. And a lot of people are being killed, and it's so unnecessary. So you've got that on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have an illegitimate president who is old, feckless, demented, perverted, incompetent, stupid, racist, and totally unliked with his handout asking for $110 billion to spend on other countries. And he's got a gun in the other hand pointing it right at you. And oh yeah, he's also asking you to vote for him and telling you if you don't pay up, He's going to let more illegal criminal aliens out onto the streets. It's almost like he understands that we don't have legitimate elections, so it's not possible for the people of America to hold him accountable. The whole thing is a giant shakedown. The government is basically running a protection racket, but not just with your local businesses, with each and every person who's a citizen of this country. It's a shakedown. Pay up or else. So I want to get into some of the court stuff because today the Supreme Court heard arguments in the Trump versus Anderson case, which stems from the Colorado Secretary of State choosing to keep Donald Trump off of the ballot for the 2024 election cycle in Colorado on the basis that Trump participated in an insurrection. This is the claim about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and all of this is based on some judge's decision in Colorado that Donald Trump committed insurrection. A judge just decided that based on what she knew, and of course what she knew was all derived from the report published by the Sham J6 Committee, which we have seen is a complete and total farce, a television show meant to deceive the American public. It has never been anything other than that. People were sucked in by it. They watched the drama night to night as it unfolded. The problem is it just wasn't real. And that's important because the basis for this claim in the first place is that Donald Trump committed insurrection. You don't even have to get to interpretations of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to understand that something is very, very wrong with this case right down to the roots. A judge in an unrelated case accepted the J6 Sham Committee's report as indisputable objective fact derived in a, I guess, official congressional hearing with witnesses under testimony. Unfortunately, it was a kangaroo court staged solely for television without equal representation of both parties, without a ranking member, without the ability to cross-examine witnesses, without the ability to show any competing evidence. It was just a one-sided, made-for-television show trial. And one judge in Colorado accepted that report 
as objective fact and determined that it was her opinion that Donald Trump had committed insurrection. Therefore, Donald Trump has committed insurrection, according to the courts, all of that in quotes, because none of this is actually logical or lawful or even remotely sensible. Anybody who understands this step to step is like, wait, that can't be what they're talking about. You are describing that wrong. There's no way that one judge just decided Donald Trump has committed insurrection based on that sham committee's report. That cannot be what this is. Well, yeah, that's exactly what this is. And in the trial where that judge made this decision, Cash Patel and other people with direct firsthand knowledge of the situation as it developed on January 6th, gave their testimony. And that testimony completely refutes the entire thing. But it doesn't matter. They're arguing that regardless, now it is just true that Donald Trump has committed insurrection. Until that judge's opinion is reversed by some court, that is just the truth now. That is what we are supposed to believe. We are supposed to regard our judicial system this way and our legal system this way. Insurrection would be a grave crime against this nation. But Donald Trump doesn't get a trial. He doesn't get to defend those claims. One judge decided, yep, that's what he did based on this report. The report itself obviously is bullshit, but there's no trial, no defense. Trump is guilty of insurrection based on one person's opinion. And so now other secretaries of state can remove Donald Trump from the ballot because he has committed insurrection. And then, by the way, they have to do it because the Constitution says in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of the president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as any member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. So the argument is that Trump has this quote unquote disability. He is an officer who has taken an oath and then has engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the country or would have given aid or comfort to the enemy. Now, the side trying to get Trump removed from the ballot actually has to prove those elements. They have to argue that their interpretation of the Constitution is correct and they have to have the facts backing them up. And because they don't have the facts backing them up, they have to convince this court that Donald Trump is actually guilty of insurrection based on this one judge's opinion and what they claim to be a full and complete factual record, an objective full and complete factual record from the J6 committee that proves Trump committed insurrection. So they really don't have any of this. And I listened to this hearing. I probably missed the first half hour, but got in after that. And it was absolutely fascinating. I encourage everyone 
to take the time and listen to it. If you are fascinated by how the government works and these theories of government and what the Constitution says and how these cases are argued by the Supreme Court. These are the sort of arguments I enjoy because they explore hypotheticals in order to draw out baseline principles. And that is really the purpose of an argument. It's also the purpose of using hypotheticals. Just a few weeks ago, we watched the media freak out about these hypotheticals. You might remember a few weeks ago when we heard about a hypothetical from the Trump immunity proceedings where the hypothetical was raised, what if a president were to order a team of Navy SEALs to assassinate a president's political rival? Could the president still claim presidential immunity? And everybody got very, very worked up about that. But these are the sort of hypotheticals that should be considered if we're trying to get down to what our baseline principles are here. If we're going to grant a president full immunity, then we should consider at least what a bad president, a worst case president might be capable of doing and how this new principle, this new standard that we're considering applying, how that might be abused. It's often very productive to take extreme cases because we have extreme reactions. We understand, oh, in this case, we actually wouldn't want to be this blunt about what we're thinking of doing here. We need a much more nuanced response. Or maybe it teaches us that as a principle, this certain decision is just untenable because it would be abused in this or that extreme case. These are just hypotheticals, hypotheticals being used to draw out the principles of an argument so that you can get down to the brass tacks and figure out what is this issue really genuinely about? I don't want to hear about statistics that tell me what you think is going to work or why you think it's going to work. Oh, if we do this, it's going to have X, Y, Z results potentially. That's not what arguments are about. Those are models and projections. Those things aren't even claims of fact, but people spend all their time there. It's like, okay, well, tell me what that number is actually for and what it means, why I should prioritize that number in this situation the way you do. Arguments should be getting down to baseline principles. And today in the Supreme Court, while the argument was fascinating, it was really wonderful to listen to. It was not very effective at all for the people looking to keep Trump off the ballot. They had Mission Impossible. And even considering that, it did not go well. It's like if you're doing the high dive at the Olympics and the difference between winning and losing is the splash your little toe makes on the way into the water and you slip on a wet spot on the board and your head hits the board and your body falls limply into the pool and you have to be rescued. And thankfully, thankfully, everything is okay. I don't want this story to seem dark or anything, but the attorneys arguing that Trump should be kept off the ballot, they didn't get anywhere near the judges deciding whether or not their toes entered the water with no splash. Now, a lot of the immediate reaction from the mainstream media was shock that even the three liberal women on the court, Ketanji Brown Jackson, uh, Elena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, even the three of them seemed like they probably weren't going to side with those arguing that Trump should be kept off the ballot. And a lot of people are assuming now 
that it will be either a 9 nothing decision or an 8-1 decision siding with Trump, but obviously we don't know. That remains to be seen. It is an indication of how poorly these arguments went for one side. John Solomon's site, Just the News, has a little write-up. We'll go through a little bit of that, and then we'll listen to some audio. Supreme Court justices appear skeptical of removal of Trump from Colorado ballot under the insurrection clause. And I'm just going to hit a few of the spots here. Chief Justice John Roberts said to the Colorado plaintiff's lawyer, Jason Murray, that, quote, other states may have different views about what constitutes insurrection, end quote. If insurrection is defined differently by various states, then, quote, we'd have to develop rules for what constitutes an insurrection. And of course, that's no job of the courts. Roberts noted that if the court sided with those arguing that Trump should be kept off the ballot without a standard for what's considered insurrection being clarified in any way, well, then states could take Trump off the ballot if they decided that he committed insurrection. And other states could decide to take Joe Biden off the ballot, deeming that he committed an insurrection for stealing the 2020 election, perhaps, and then allowing himself to be portrayed as being inaugurated to the American public. Or we could go a more normie route for those people who just can't stop watching Fox News. Joe Biden's been allowing an invasion. Maybe Texas could decide that Joe Biden is giving aid and comfort to our enemies, the criminal cartels and the global regime operating a slave trade, and they could keep Biden off the ballot. And so then our presidential elections would just be a contest between two sets of states, each trying to keep the other candidate off of their ballot. There isn't really a path forward for the country if we get to that point. And hilariously, the only retort was really that they didn't think something like that would happen. That would be really extreme. I think it was Jenna Griswold at one point who said that. They didn't believe that states were going to try to take advantage of this sort of thing. You see, this Trump situation, this is unique. We haven't had an insurrection since the Civil War. So this Trump thing, this is the worst thing that's happened since then. It's the sort of thing that only happens once every 150 years. So please, can't we just make an exception here? Let's rule that we can keep Trump off the ballot this time. And then everyone will agree never to abuse this rule. I mean, unless they have to. And the funny thing is they may even be honest. They will never abuse this rule in the future. They really do only want it this time. But the only basis on which we could ever possibly believe that is that they're a uniparty and that both sides of the uniparty would certainly never have occasion to use this sort of thing against the other because those things are all worked out behind the scenes. These sorts of crazy occurrences, they don't happen when it's just the uniparty right and uniparty left working together to give us a show and convince us of what we have to allow them to do. The article mentions a discussion between Katanji Brown Jackson and the attorney representing Colorado, Jason Murray. She asked Murray, if we think that the states can't enforce this provision for whatever reason in this context... In the presidential context, what happens next in this case? I mean, is it done? Murray responded that 
if the court decided that Colorado didn't have the authority to exclude President Trump from the presidential ballot on procedural grounds, he thinks the case would be done. But he says, I think it could come back with a vengeance because ultimately members of Congress may have to make the determination after a presidential election. If President Trump wins about whether or not he's disqualified from office and whether to count votes for him under the Electoral Count Reform Act, isn't that incredible? This is what we've been talking about now for months. I first highlighted it a few months ago when Liz Cheney was on with Jake Tapper on one of the Sunday shows, promoting her book, getting her name talked about a little bit as maybe a potential third party candidate for president. I still think that her name is going to be pushed maybe in a month or so for Speaker of the House. I guess we'll see about that. I mentioned it. I don't know what, 10, 11 days ago, last Monday, when we were talking about Taylor Swift and that article in the New York Times, that article said specifically that they think the real election is going to be January 6th, 2025, when the electors from each state are counted and certified. And here we have that popping up again. Katanji Brown Jackson sets Jason Murray up with this question. Would this all be done if we decide that President Trump cannot be on the ballot? He says it's going to come back with a vengeance because members of Congress will have to make the determination after an election if Trump wins about whether or not he's disqualified from office and whether to count the votes for him under the Electoral Count Reform Act. He is saying that Congress is going to vote that Donald Trump committed insurrection and therefore cannot serve even after he's elected. Now, do you think that's the sort of problem that can be solved by voting absolutely as hard as you can? It certainly is not. They are giving you a preview of the strategy. We are dealing with far too many unknowns to make a decision about what to do nine months from now The last thing we should be concerned with doing is shutting down conversation about it. Let's go back to just the news. Justice Elena Kagan also seems skeptical of allowing Colorado to keep Trump off the state ballot in her questioning of Murray. I think that question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. In other words, you know, This question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection to be president again is just say it. It sounds awfully national to me. So whatever means there are to enforce it would suggest that they have to be federal national means that kind of points to the Congress voting that Donald Trump committed an insurrection and they could do that in unipartisan fashion. And when they would do it is between when Donald Trump wins that November 5th, 2024 general election and January 6th, 2025, when they have to count those electors. They want a unipartisan group of members of Congress to vote that Donald Trump is guilty of insurrection and therefore cannot serve again as president. Now, Obviously, this would be a total meltdown scenario for our politics. 
the new president just reelected. The nation has come out and they have said we want Donald Trump. And then the unipartisan Congress is going to vote that Donald Trump committed insurrection. Matt Gates brought up a bill just a couple days ago asking the Congress to declare that Donald Trump had not committed insurrection. And he was joined by about 65 Republicans, not on the list of people joining him, by the way, were the two primary cuckolds who supported Ron DeSantis, Chip Roy and Thomas Massey. Now, I know a lot of people like those guys, but how many chances do they get with me? It's basically zero. You have to prove to me why you're good in something other than speeches you make on television or issues you support, but nonetheless don't win. And you would have to be nailing those things out of the park constantly to support Ron DeSantis and still be seen as acceptable in my mind. Anyone who knows that the 2020 election was stolen and supports that steal in any fashion is off the list. I don't care what they say about conservative principles after that. And so how would something like that look? Well, if they are able to remove Speaker Mike Johnson and replace him with someone like Liz Cheney or like Hakeem Jeffries, a Democrat, if they are able to, in unipartisan fashion, find someone else to be speaker, you could imagine that speaker would be happy to bring something like this to the floor of the house. All of this sounds plausible. In fact, it sounds like it's falling into place. In fact, it sounds like these three communist justices on the Supreme Court might have decided or been told that it was their goal today to lay down a predicate for the Congress having to determine whether or not the president is eligible to run based on whether or not they decide he has engaged in insurrection. Now, again, it's worth noting that Donald Trump has never been tried for insurrection and neither has anyone else involved with January 6th. They can't convince the people that Donald Trump would somehow lose. They can't get the Congress to vote now to take Trump off the ballot. Maybe they can do it after Trump wins. You're talking about people who cannot allow Trump to retake power and also people who themselves may be lame ducks. They could get voted out of office and still be able to vote on this between November 5th and the end of their term at the end of the year. Trump's attorney, Jonathan Mitchell, who received very high praise from constitutional law scholar Jonathan Turley argued that a state cannot exclude any candidate for federal office from the ballot on account of Section 3, and any state that does so is violating the holding of term limits by altering the Constitution's qualifications for federal office. And that is a valid point. That is exactly what they would be doing. They would be changing the Constitution's qualifications for who gets to hold office. You got to be a natural born citizen. You got to be at least 35 years old. And now you have to be a person who was not deemed to have committed insurrection by someone. Clarence Thomas, who is famous for being silent during these Supreme Court arguments most of the time, actually got fairly involved today. He inquired as to whether or not 
Section three of the 14th Amendment was self-executing, meaning that it just immediately went into effect as soon as the insurrection has occurred. Is Trump just immediately disqualified? And Trump's attorney, Jonathan Mitchell, argued fairly effectively that no, he was not. And then this is the highlight that seems to be getting the most airplay since the end of the arguments. And it was also kind of something that caught my ear as I was listening to it. Here is Justice Neil Gorsuch. Speaks about disqualification from holding office. You say he is disqualified from holding office from the moment it happens. Correct, but nevertheless... So, so it, it operates, you say that there's no, no legislation necessary. I thought that was the whole theory of your case. And no procedure necessary. It happens automatically. Well, certainly you need a procedure in order to have any remedy to enforce the disqualification, which is I under, That's a whole separate question. That's the de facto doctrine. Doesn't work here. Okay, put that aside. He's disqualified from the moment. Self-executing. Done. And I would think that a person who would receive a direction from that person, the president, former president, in your view, would be free to act as he or she wishes without regard to that individual. I don't think so, because I think, again, the de facto officer doctrine would nevertheless come into play to say this is no de facto. That that doesn't work, Mr. Murray, because de facto officer is to ratify the conduct that's done afterwards and and, and insulate it from judicial review. Put that aside. I'm not going to say it again. Put it aside. Okay. I think Justice Lee is asking a very different question, a more pointed one and more difficult one for you. I understand. But I think it deserves an answer on your theory. Would anything compel a, a lower official to obey an order from, in your view, the former president? I'm imagining a situation where, for example, a former president was, you know, a, a president was elected and they were 25 and they were ineligible to no, hold office, but no, nevertheless they were no, put into that no, office. No, no, we're talking about Section 3. And please don't change the hypothetical, okay? I'm, please don't change the hypothetical. I know I like doing it too, but please don't do it. <laughs> Okay. Well, the, the point I'm trying to make is he's that, disqualified from the moment he committed an insurrection, whoever it is, whichever party it, that that happens. Boom. It happened. What would compel? And I'm not going to say it again. So just try and answer the question. If you don't have an answer, fair enough. We'll move on. What would compel a lower official to obey an order from that individual? Because ultimately we have we have statutes and rules. So what's at issue here is really interesting. Gorsuch is asking, let's say that this is self-executing, as you argue, Donald Trump engaged in insurrection on January 6th, 2021, making him therefore ineligible to serve as president of the United States of America, except he did serve for two more weeks, at least after having committed insurrection. Should his subordinates as president, should his subordinates in that span of time, be following his orders? And are those orders legitimate? I mean, they're suggesting something pretty extraordinary here, and they're asking the court to go along with something pretty extraordinary. Someone somewhere can decide that a president or former president engaged in insurrection or provided aid and comfort to the enemy. And upon that decision, the president is then just no longer eligible to be president? Are they no longer president if they're in office? Because the Constitution says the only way to remove a president is through impeachment. 
So if they're not impeached, but they're also ineligible to be president, are their orders valid? Should people follow those orders? What are the standards for any of this? And of course, it's impossible to know from these arguments. They're not well thought out. The issue is a mess. There is no legitimate argument here. And of course, Donald Trump did not engage in insurrection. The idea is preposterous. Joe Biden, of course, did engage in insurrection. And we're going to find out a lot more about what Donald Trump's most vicious opponents have engaged with over the years. That period is still to come. And this argument actually might have greater validity then. If Joe Biden, as Donald Trump says, committed insurrection, if it's true that the real insurrection was November 3rd, 2020, then what should be wiped out from that point? Should we imagine that this insurrectionist was eligible to serve as president and then served as president in a legitimate way and all of his subordinates should support and execute his decisions despite his illegitimacy? Now, you might think we're never going to get to that moment where these sorts of issues can be adjudicated because we've watched the last three plus years without a solution present, a solution in our near sight, but it has to be dealt with at some point, doesn't it? And it turns out it's kind of being dealt with right now in front of the whole country because it's about Donald Trump. They're going after Donald Trump, but none of it's legitimate. That's the whole thing. There's nothing underlying any of this. It's just fake stuff underneath fake stuff underneath fake stuff. But the story's real. The story's going out to us. And that could cause people to think in different ways. That's real. It could cause people to act in different ways. That's real. It could affect future real events. So that's real. So there's something real here. And there's something fake here. It's something real based on something fake. And there's plenty of fakeness based on real things. And I know that that's kind of sounding like we're going off into the distance where things make no sense, but that's not what's happening here. We have a series of real events that have been lied about or portrayed in false ways, but nonetheless, this story is going out there and the story is real. The story can influence future events. A story about fake events can influence future real events. These arguments are being made and these precedents are being set. And in the background, we know that not only is Donald Trump not guilty, these aren't even real events that are being adjudicated here. And ultimately, all of this is just for narrative effect, if any effect at all, because if Trump wins and MAGA wins and they lose, the entire point will be so that injustices like these can be removed and reversed unwound and undone. And part of being able to do that is to get all this stuff out there on the table, adjudicate it in front of the public, and we'll see where that takes us. As I often say, just let them do what they're doing right now. They're going to draw the lines on the field, draw the lines on the field. Let's get all these rules down so that both sides agree, and then we can go play ball. And I know that people get sick of me calling things fake. They're like, it can't be fake. Why do you keep calling it fake? Isn't that a cop out? And I get it. It seems like that. I know it seems like that. But hey, I mean, Trump's doing it too. Check this out. The weaponization of uh, politics, they weaponized it like it's never been weaponized before. It's totally illegal, but they do it anyway. And it has to stop. 
every one of the court cases that I'm involved, every single one, civil, whether it's the attorney generals or the district attorneys, you look at Fani in Georgia, they had many meetings with the White House and with the DOJ. They went there, eight-hour meetings. That was all staged. That was a phony hoax. And now you look at it, and it is a phony hoax. And hopefully that case will be dismissed in short order. It's a, it's a disgrace to this country. But they work together with the Justice Department and the White House, and not supposed to do that. Every one of these cases you see comes out of the White House. It comes out of Biden. It's election interference, and it's really very sad. He said the cases are fake. They're a phony hoax. I know it's hard to believe. I remember when I used to hear Trump call things hoaxes and think, oh, come on. Well, it can't be totally a hoax. And yet here we are in February 2024, and I'm not sure I know one he's been wrong about. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app, 
and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!